Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. On today's show, I'm having a look at Christmas music. Later on, Brent Butt, comedian and author of the best-selling novel Huge, stops by to talk about a Christmas tradition he and his wife share to get into the holiday spirit every year. Debbie Travers talks about her favorite Christmas tune and tells a personal story about a famous friend who wrote the song. We'll also get to know Larry Weinstein, director of the documentary Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas, a musical documentary about the amazing group of Jewish songwriters who wrote the soundtrack to Christmas. And we'll learn how the Cuban Missile Crisis inspired one of the most popular Christmas songs of all time. We'll also tell you the story of Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues, a boozy Christmas song released in 1987 that went on to become the UK's most played Christmas song of the 21st century, and it re-enters the music charts every December. First, though, I want to tell you about the Trans-Canada Highwaymen, a new band that consists of four of this country's best rock singer-songwriters, Sloan's Chris Murphy, from The Odds, Craig Northey, and former Bare Naked Ladies frontman Stephen Page, along with Mo Berg of The Pursuit of Happiness. The album is covers of Canadian AM rock radio hits from the 1960s and 70s, and it's really fun. Mo Berg in this interview and I talk about the new album and then get into the spirit of the season as Mo talks about a Christmas song he wrote with the pursuit of happiness and a tune he loves so much he has a plaque with the lyrics in his home that he brings out every Christmas. Here's Mo Berg of the Trans-Canada Highwayman. I'll tell you, when I saw the cover, it immediately rocketed me back to being a kid and buying the KTEL albums. And I guess probably that's where some of your early musical education would have come from. Well, sure. I think we all felt that same way. And I think that's the way it works. This was all Chris Murphy from Sloan. He is the architect, the whole, he did all the art direction on this. And he even shot a 17 minute infomercial. So if you remember those infomercials, Time Life Presents, the psychedelic rock of the 70s, that kind of thing. So it looks like that. It's very funny, extremely funny. If you were ever... You know, if you have a certain vintage and you remember those things, you'd get a big kick out of it. So the 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 idea for the songs is like those songs, the 1969 to 1975, that fits really nicely into that era of KTEL records when they were very sort of ubiquitous. And so, yeah, it all kind of tied together pretty nicely. And your songs are uh, Pretty Lady by Lighthouse, uh, Raised on Robbery, Joni Mitchell, and You, Me, and Mexico by Edward Bear. How did you choose those three songs for your vocal contributions? I wanted to do Pretty Lady because it's one of my favorite songs of all time, actually. I love that song. And uh, and then uh, there was idea, we should do a Joni Mitchell song. Let's get Mo to do Raised on Robbery because it's kind of a rocker and it's not as, right. and it was a single and, you know, people will know it. I think that was an idea. And I, I mean, I'm a huge Joni Mitchell fan, so I was very willing to take on the Joni Mitchell song. And, uh, and then Yumi in Mexico had a funny story that, um, I was in a band with Chris before, and it was just a fun band. We didn't actually play any shows. It was just a ch- chance to get together and play with a couple of our friends, uh, Kevin Hilliard and Barry Walsh. And we used to play Yumi in Mexico and we used to sing it. And we, and we sort of, we kind of made it a bit funny the way we did it. And I said, we should just revive that because I think it was a, it was fun to do the song. 
And what do you think it is about these songs? This album it sounds new. It's a it's a you know a, a cool state of the art kind of sounding record, but it's really nostalgic for me. I got kind of almost teary at some points listening to the the songs and the song selections on this. I guess it's nostalgia. It is me, you know, reflecting back on growing up a little bit. But what do you think it is? I, I think a lot of people would have that reaction, the that idea of nostalgia and thinking about those times, simpler times, different yeah. times, you know. You know, I, I often reflect back on my youth. I listen to a lot of old music and I and it really creates a feeling of nostalgia in me and and it's that's which is a very bittersweet emotion. Um it makes you you know, you're kinda happy, but you're almost like you have a sort of almost like a longing for time an earlier time. You know, it makes you sort of like consider that time has gone by we're getting older those things there's it's a very complex uh emotion that that, that we tie to um uh, nostalgia and i mean psychologists used to think it was like a neuroses like it was almost like a, a disease <laughs> and so i i am um, yeah so i think it has something to do with that but it also uh, I, I, but i what i do uh, I, what i do appreciate about what you said is it sort of has because we recorded it the way we recorded it and and we put our own energy into it, our own band's energy into it. And it doesn't sound like we were just trying to make it sound like it was coming out of a 1969 radio. It's it, it sounds relatively current in terms of its sonics. And so I think that may be what I would love is that people who aren't of that vintage would listen to it and sort of really appreciate, you know, the song craft of these old songs. I mean, it's not nothing to actually get a song played on the radio. The song has to have, you know, be a pretty good song before it becomes a hit song. Well, it kind of made me reevaluate some of these songs. Like when I was a kid, Heartbeat, It's a Love Beat by the DeFranco family might have been a guilty pleasure that I would listen to on the radio, but I would certainly never tell the cool kids that I was listening to the DeFranco family, you know, but then you hear the song today and it's a wicked little tune. Like it's a great song. True. It's funny. I was asked this question uh, in another interview and they were saying, you know, you know, Mo, like, you know, when you, would you think of these songs as being like, because you were, you know, a cool guy, maybe, or, you know, which I don't know if I was, but <laughs> would you, um, you know, think of these songs like, oh, these are dumb songs, these are stupid songs, and you, I, you never would have listened to them at the time. You're listening to Mo Berg on The Richard Krause Show. His new album, With the Trans-Canada Highwaymen, is available now wherever you buy fine music. And I said, well, I did have a little bit of a period of my life when I was really into punk rock, and, you know, the punk scene was very dismissive of any other music other than punk music. And, but, and you know, and so I am, um, so that was true, but I, it, as much as you know being in punk bands and, and listening to that music at the time when it was a, which was a very formative time in my life the, the the music that i'm creating now has a lot more in common with the music that we put on this record than probably you know the punk rock records that i listened to so it, i mean when i was a kid we didn't have very much money i was we had a i lived in a pretty poor family and so listening to the radio is where I absorb most of my music so all these songs would have been songs I would have heard hundreds of times from just sitting in front of my radio and listening to music so oh. they probably had more to do with my musical uh upbringing than than anything else so I saw I found a song called all that you got me for Christmas it was a demo that the pursuit of happiness uh recorded uh released in 2018 but I think it was recorded in like 1986 or something like that Tell me a little bit about the song, if you can. Right. And uh, honestly, my recollection of this is a tiny bit fuzzy, but <laughs> we were asked by we were uh, asked by EMI Publishing, which was our publishing company, 
And this would, we would have probably have been signed to a record deal by this time. And, uh, and so I think Love Junk maybe was already out. Mm-hmm. And we, um, we were asked to write a Christmas song and record it. And we recorded it. They had a little studio in their uh, offices in, in Los Angeles. And so they said, come into the studio and we'll, we'll quickly record this track. And, uh, and it was just, you know, we were in L.A. doing some shows. And it was just kind of one of those things. We just showed up. We probably spent two or three hours doing it. And then it was done. And, and I don't know that anything ever happened with it. It's mm-hmm. just like we recorded it and then I don't, I never heard about it again. So whatever they were using it for, I don't think they were actually did use it for anything. Right. And, so, and I don't think we ever performed it. It was just one, it, we, we spent three hours recording it and then it just disappeared from the world. Well, so it's a cool song. When we released the, uh, the, the deluxe version, there was, you know, Universal saying, do you have any old stuff that we could put on there and we can make it a deluxe record and, you know, put another disc on there. So it was when digging around for stuff, I found that. And then I found another, uh, 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 an Elvis Presley Christmas song that we recorded and I found a live version of that. And so I thought, it's so funny we're doing this record. I had two of the songs are Christmas songs. And I, <laughs> that was not on purpose. It would just be, it was just kind of like, that was the sort of the best stuff we had. Well, and I think the reason that they were probably pushing you to do a Christmas song is that they're perennials, right? They, if you get one that, that strikes a chord with people, you'll be making money off that thing for decades to come. Right. And if that had only happened to us. <laughs> Do you have a, a, a Christmas song that strikes a chord with you? Oh, many, many. I'm a, I love Christmas. Christmas is a big, big deal to me. It's a big deal in our household. My son is a Christmas maniac. <laughs> and we watch a Christmas movie every night from like December 1st to December 25th. When we get up in the morning to open our stockings, the first song that goes on is Mistletoe and Holly by Frank Sinatra. Oh, by gosh, by golly, it's time for Mistletoe and Holly. That is my number one favorite Christmas song. I love it. I could listen to it in the middle of the summer and be absolutely happy. And I even have a little plaque that says, oh, by gosh, by golly. It's time for mistletoe and holly, and I put that up for on Christmas time, and I just love that song. But I love many, many Christmas songs. But yeah, that's definitely my favorite. Is there a link to when you were a kid? I, I find so often there's a, a link to those songs because perhaps they were important to you when you were a child as well. Well, I remember, you know, listening to Christmas records when I was a kid. I, there was a bunch of Christmas records that we didn't have a bunch. We had a few. One was a, a Glenn Campbell Christmas record. And that one really resonates with me. That was something I really associate with Christmas back home in St. Albert, Alberta, like listening to that record. And, I, and, you know, we used to listen to, you know, Frank Sinatra. And I don't even know if it was that song in particular, but I just remember listening to Frank Sinatra Christmas records, Bing Crosby Christmas, all the old kind of classic stuff. But I don't know. It was probably only in the last 20 years that I just, I, I remember just playing it, a Frank Sinatra Christmas record and that song came on and just like something about it, just kind of like, wow, this is it. This is really, this just is so descriptive of Christmas in a sort of very secular way. Yeah. Um, and I don't have any issue with Christmas hymns either. Definitely not. But I just, it, the, the, just the words and the, his vocal performance is so outstanding. And it. it's just an absolutely killer vocal performance. In fact, I don't know that he sang another song in his career any better than he sang that song. And, and I even, I teach production at, at Fanshawe College in, in London, Ontario. And I remember playing it just for fun. And I just played it in class. And I said, I said, just listen to this vocal. Just listen to it. And it's just, it's so incredible. Well, we've learned something just in time for Christmas. If you want to make Mo Berg happy, Sing a line or two of mistletoe and holly to him when you see him next. Also, 
Be sure to pick up his new album with the Trans-Canada Highwaymen. It's called Explosive Hits, number one, available wherever you buy fine music. A couple of years ago, I asked legendary journalist Lyndon McIntyre what his favorite Christmas song was. This is what he told me. The problem with Christmas music is that it's terribly nostalgic and it always, you know, it's it's sweet and it takes you back most often to sad places. So I was kind of thrilled when the Pogues came out with uh, the fairy tale, New York fairy tale song, which I embraced. And it became my my favorite. I did some research, and apparently, it's not only Lyndon McIntyre that loves "Fairy Tale of New York" by the Pogues. Released in 1987, the song is an Irish folk-style ballad and was written as a duet with the Pogue singer Shane McGowan and Christy McCall as bickering former lovers on Christmas Eve. A song about their youthful hopes crushed by alcohol and drug addiction, it doesn't sound like a Christmas cracker, but in the UK it was the most played Christmas song of the 21st century and re-enters the music charts every December. To find out more about the song, I spoke with Richard Balls, author of the best-selling biography A Furious Devotion, The Life of Shane McGowan. So the first question, the most important question is, is Fairy Tale of New York the booziest Christmas song ever written? I'd, I'd say it would have to be. I mean, I think it, I, in my opinion, it's also the, uh, the it's also the, the, the best Christmas song um, ever written. It's certainly the most unlikely Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is. It's like it's like a really good Christmas cake. I mean, it is literally steeped in um, in booze um, right from the right from the moment it starts. And I think that what you know that's one of the great things about Shane's storytelling is, like all good books, you know, uh, you're, you're straight in. You know, it's Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. You know, you you're straight in to the setting and where it is, and you 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 can imagine straight away where this is all going. Well, let's dig back a little bit. And uh, do you know the details of the writing of the song? Yeah, I mean, uh, originally, uh, I think it was done about two or three years um, previously. I think the uh, the manager of the Pogues, Frank Murray, kind of had a bet. Uh, with them and said, oh, I bet you can't, you know, I bet you can't write a, a really good Christmas song, you know. And uh, I think that, that you know, so that that was the gauntlet was thrown down. And Jem Finer, the banjo player in the Pogues, and Shane started together to write uh, to write a song uh, around Christmas. And I think originally had a slightly different idea, but then you know, it was a kind of it was something that kind of germinated. Um, over two or three years, really, um, you know, it was. I, I think the idea for for it to be set in New York came from from Shane. Mm-hmm. Um, he took the uh, the idea, of the the title from Dunleavy's book, and um, you know, it, it was. It's it's about the human condition, as as are so many of Shane's songs. And I think the idea came um, from from him to set it in New York. And that the, the characters in it were were Irish emigrants. I think that there's also something about this song that uh, is very common in a lot of Christmas music. In that, a lot of Christmas music is nostalgic yeah. in tone, but have a, a, a deep sorrow to them as well. 
I think that's right. And, I, and, and like a lot of songs, it means different things, I suspect, to, to different people. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the nostalgic and sentimental side of it. So he, he refers in there to, um, you know, the Galway Bay, an old yeah. Irish traditional song. Um, so a lot of people will will hear that and, you know, the bells are ringing out. And then that, that will make them um, feel nostalgic sentimental for that kind of old Ireland. You're listening to author Richard Balls, author of the best-selling biography, A Furious Devotion, The Life of Shane McGowan. Makes a great Christmas present, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. You know, it'll it'll mean different things to, to, to different people. There's sentimentality in there, as you say. There's, but there's also, what I love about it is it's all about, it kind of dots its cap to, to all the Irish um, immigrants down the years who who went to, who arrived at the gates of Ellis Island, probably with just, you know, a few possessions mm-hmm. and all of those kind of hopes and dreams of a, of a better life. And, you know, these two characters are, are kind of speaking to that and also playing out that kind of, you know, unfulfilled uh, dreams and, and, and ambitions. Mm-hmm. You know, I could have been someone, you know. Yeah. That line always slays me. It's so plausible and so and so authentic, and that's another great thing about Shane's writing. It's it's real. It's authentic. But it's also very literary. I mean, this is a, a song that could easily have been a short story and even a novel. I think along the way, uh, the storytelling yeah. is beautiful, and it 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 encompasses uh, so much. It encompasses the immigrant experience, the waking up in the drunk tank experience there's just so much richness there uh that it really is quite extraordinary yeah and i think you know that's that's one of the things i i wrote quite a lot uh, as you can imagine in the book about the song and i think it because i thought it it really um deserved that you know it's a song of such depth i mean shane didn't just add another kind of gaudy bauble to the to to pop's christmas tree he actually added something of, of incredible substance and do you think that's why it has lasted and just still resonates so loudly today? Every year, uh, this song makes a comeback. I've heard it at least twice while I was outside today uh, and, yeah. and will continue to the entire season. Uh, and it's always, it's, it's I think, voted the, the number one song in the UK at Christmas. Is that why it resonates with people? Yeah, I think so. I think it is because it's about people, you know, it's mm-hmm. about it's about real people. It's not just about some, you know, sort of, uh, you know, just like a the normal kind of festive songs, um, you know, even if they are about yearning, like, you know, driving home for Christmas mm-hmm. and things like that. They are still, um, you know, I suppose ultimately it's a kind of sentimentality. But this this is a very bittersweet um, kind of sentimentality uh, that you, you find in this and uh, it's got so many layers to it like like you say I mean it, it's about it's about emigration it's uh, it's about I mean I think when in 1987 when when the song was released uh, I think that was the kind of peak of, of um, Irish emigration to New York um, so you know, in recent years, a lot of people have been returning to Ireland to, to live from America and from the UK and other countries uh, in the last 20 or 30 years. But certainly in 1987, it was a time of a lot of people leaving Ireland. Um, so it was a lot of Irish people um, in New York at that time and in America, you know, that they, that must have resonated incredibly strongly with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I know that um, when the Pogues played in, in New York in, in the 80s, 
you know, they, they were nights absolutely unforgettable, apparently. I would also imagine it provides a nice little annuity for the writers of the song Shane McGowan and Jem Finer. Because it's a Christmas thing, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Because it's not like a, you know, once in a every ten years it gets dragged out. It's like every year, and yeah. and and like I say, the sales, um, you know, it's a record that keeps being bought because of streaming and stuff like yeah. that. You know, uh, which of course wasn't wasn't the case in the in, in the past. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a fifty fifty split. I, I got told that. So Shane and Jem Finer share in that, and they probably get. 180,000 a year, 175,000 wow. roughly. If it's you want to write a song, write a Christmas song. We'll write Christmas songs, I know. <laughs> well, I'll start making some notes and they'll yeah. send them over and we've got a year, you know, we can yeah. figure this out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, scribble it, scribble it down and we'll send it down Tin Pan Alley and see what happens. That was Richard Ball's author of A Furious Devotion, The Life of Shane McGowan, available now wherever you buy fine books. It's a fantastic read that would make a great Christmas gift. This is a special look at the sounds of the season, the Christmas songs we hear in our homes or on the PA systems of the stores that we shop in, the songs that are the soundtrack to Christmas. In this segment, we'll have a look at the origins of some of those songs with Larry Weinstein, director of the documentary Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas, a musical documentary about the amazing story of a group of Jewish songwriters who wrote many of the songs that we listen to each and every year. Along with beautiful musical performances from Stephen Page, who sings Silver Bells, and Tom Wilson, who does Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the movie tells the story of Christmas standards like Winter Wonderland, Sleigh Ride, and Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. The beloved musical standards of the season that were written by Jewish songwriters like Irving Berlin, Mel Torme, and Johnny Marks. Stick around and learn how the Cuban Missile Crisis inspired one of the most popular Christmas songs of all time. Here's Larry Weinstein on his film Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas, which you can find on iTunes and on the CBC Documentary Channel online. Let's talk about uh, the premise of the film then. So your idea is that, and I think rightly so, is that Jewish songwriters and writers created White Christmas, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, sort of a non-secular way of the way that we celebrate Christmas. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the one exception to the non-secular is, is uh, Do You Hear What I Hear, right. which actually yeah. talks about the Christ child yeah. and, and had a whole different history why, why that was written. I actually would love to tell you some of the other titles. Sure. Um, yeah, so Winter Wonderland, which is in our film, uh, Chestnuts on Open Fire, the Christmas song, A Sleigh Ride, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. Uh, uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year, rocking around the Christmas tree, silver bells, I'll be home for Christmas, holly jolly Christmas, <laughs> and the ones that, that are in the film as and, well. And, and every song that you hear when you're in you know, a Walmart or a Shoppers Drug Mart or whatever, playing over the PA system for the entire month of December. Right, so a lot of people really hate these songs. <laughs> <laughs> Understandably. I, I am not one of them. <laughs> It starts off kind of sort of in a lighthearted sort of way. And then as we get further and deeper into the story, uh, it, it does become quite profound. And it's a hybrid of a film, really. It's a documentary, but it's also a performance 
And a drama. And a drama. There's a lot of things going on. And here. the interviewees that yeah. are from all over the place, from comedians to musicologists to a priest and a rabbi. It sounds like <laughs> a setup for a joke. Um, so it's it's all over the place. I like to think of it as a, as like Christmas. It's like it's like all these boxes with gifts in them and you don't know what's in the box right. and it's one surprise after another. So what do you think makes a great Christmas song? I think that the really great Christmas songs are about, and, and sort of counterintuitively, I think, about melancholy, about loss, I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams, uh, songs like that that are about sort of nostalgia and a feeling for the subject and for the time, but um, that have a, just a little tinge of sadness to them. I think you're right. I haven't thought of it that way exactly. I thought that there's a wide-eyed, kind of na almost naive approach. I, I think of these guys who wrote these things being outsiders, looking yeah. in, looking through a window and seeing these beautiful, idealized Christmas celebrations yeah. and, and, and having so much, um, uh, well, affection for it, but, but envy, too. And, and, and uh, but what you're saying is true. I had a real uh, for a little while. Uh, for for a while, Hoxley Workman was going to be one of the musicians in the film, and he he's written some Christmas songs. And he said he was desperately trying to recapture what these guys did, mm -hmm. and that that it was a different time, and that these times have changed, and and the melancholy is there. I think that might be partly because so many of these people were either immigrants or children of immigrants who came from terrible circumstances in Europe, and then most of them came to New York, and and when that as, as yeah, I mean, that, that Statue of Liberty actually meant something, and they came with open arms, and they're trying desperately to be American, and, and, and lovingly so. Yeah. It's very sincere. A lot of people are cynical about, oh, they were trying to make a buck. Well, there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of these songs written, so why did these last mm -hmm. generations? I think what you're saying is right. There's something about them that is sort of like a hook to me that, that, that always makes them mean something more than just uh, a, a song that you hear in, you know, in, at Walmart and it sort of goes in one ear and out the other. I mean, even even in, in terms of what you're saying, even Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, mm -hmm. which is such a, you know, a silly yeah. children's song in a way, has its very melancholy roots. Yeah. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Had a very shiny nose And if you ever saw it You would even say it glows It's about an outsider who who decides they they have to be proud of what they are and all that. But it was written by a man who Robert May, who, who it was based on his coloring book that he made for Montgomery Ward Department Store. They commissioned him, yeah, and he right. came up with Rudolph Reynolds Reindeer, kind of based on his own child growing up in New Rochelle as a Jewish kid who was laughed. Kids laughed at him, called him names. You're listening to Larry Weinstein on The Richard Krause Show. His film, Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas, is available on iTunes and on the CBC Documentary Channel online. And he decided to be proud. Yeah. And as Robert Harris, the wonderful Robert Harris, says in, in our film, uh, Rudolph, the great thing about Rudolph is he didn't get a nose job. <laughs> 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 but as he's telling the story, he starts to actually cry because right. it's such a moving story and it's like now I listen to Rudolph in a department store and I start to weep <laughs> like what the hell Send the little 
songs um, and it does indeed talk about the Christ child and it's a prayer for peace and and Gloria Shane Baker who wrote the song uh, when she was growing up her next door neighbor was John F were the Kennedys oh wow uh, Joe and Ethel Kennedy and John F Kennedy who was just a bit older than her yeah. and so uh, in October 1962 she wrote this song because it was the in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. And she was believed that John Kennedy is someone who was going to save the world and be optimistic. You know, it was going to be a time of optimism. And then this thing happened, and she was so devastated, and her husband um, by by what was happening uh, and the possibility of nuclear war, that she wrote this prayer for peace in the form of a Christmas song. And um, and for the rest of her life, whenever she heard it or when she had to perform it, she would break down in tears because it had so much meaning for her. So that's that's kind of neat. And yeah, yeah. You wouldn't think that's the latest of the songs. We we right. our songs are from from 1934, Winter Wonderland, to. Is it kind uh, of would, would that be Tin Pan Alley? Is that sort of like that? Do, do those dates line up? Uh, pretty these well. These are professional songwriters, yes, right? Yes, that are yes, pretty not well. Not necessarily performers. They yes, were. The, yeah. yeah, in the 30s, 40s, most definitely, and 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 they were they were professional songwriters who wrote about everything and anything. And, and, you know, Irving Glenn had written Easter songs. Yeah, yeah. Larry, when you were working on this film, were there songs that didn't make it in that you loved the stories, but you just couldn't fit them in for time or anything like that? We we did the sort of blanket kind of inviting different right. publishers to, like, we would love to have your song. And, and some of them, they're just harder to get. Right. Um, and, and so, um, I mean, for instance, I'll be home for Christmas that mm -hmm. you mentioned, we, we liked its melancholy and it's, it's sadness. And, um, I mean, there were, there were a whole bunch of them that we were, we were considering and, and the, and there's just such a vast number of them. And, and then you keep going because of course, all the songs from the Grinch stole Christmas, oh. that's a Jewish composer. The songs from Peanuts, um, Christmas time is here, Jewish composer. And it's like, ah, when will this end? <laughs> um, and then I started realizing, I started having this weird phenomenon where I willed songs to become Jewish. <laughs> because I love, I love Little Drummer Boy. Right. And then I found out that the Little Drummer Boy that we know, both the title and the arrangement that we know is by a Jewish uh, person, even though it was originally a Christian song, yeah. but it was kind of repackaged, and, and we wouldn't recognize the original one. Right, and brought in, and made into a, like more of a pop song, yeah. almost by by yeah. a Jewish uh, arranger and composer. And it was called the Drum Carol, and yeah. it was a very different song. And 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 this kind of thing happened. I even have this theory that that um, Silent Night is by a Jewish composer who actually worked in a church in Germany in the early 1800s. That was Larry Weinstein on the Richard Krauss Show. His film Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas is available on iTunes and on the CBC Documentary Channel online. Check it out. It's really worth a look. When we come back, some very special guests like Debbie Travis and Mark Critch pick their very favorite songs of the season. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. We're having a look at Christmas songs on the show today, so I thought I'd ask a few famous friends what song they have to hear during the holidays. First up is Brent Butt, the star, writer, and or producer of TV shows like Corner Gas, Hiccups, and Corner Gas Animated. He recently added a new line to his resume, Thriller Author. 
His debut novel is huge, and it is indeed a big bestseller. And you know what? It would make a great Christmas gift. I asked him for his favorite Christmas songs. I mean, there's sort of two songs, if that's okay, if I can pick yeah, two. Absolutely. There's sort of two that have a soft spot in my heart. Um, one is, I think it's just called the Christmas song. You know, the city sidewalks, you know. I remember that song when I was a little goomer, probably 11 or 12, singing that song in church um, and kind of leading with my little group of kids. I was the guy leading that song. And I just have such a fondness of that moment, that window in time. It was such a fun night putting on that sort of Christmas concert in the church. And I sang that song. So anytime I hear that song, when it plays throughout the season, I'm, I'm ro sort of rocketed back. Talk about being a sucker for nostalgia. That's right. And the other, the other song is um, just Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And the reason being that my wife, Nancy, who is one of Earth's most naturally funny human beings, whenever, so on December 1st, I don't know when exactly this happened, but it's been going on for many years now, maybe 15 years now. On December 1st, because she has a rule, she doesn't want to hear any Christmas songs before December. On December 1st, she will burst into doing sort of a big nightclub lounge version of <laughs> Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer with a big wind-up and everything. I can't begin to uh, do, do it justice here. And wherever I'm, if I'm on the road, there have been times when I'm just, you know, driving in the road uh, between Lethbridge and Medicine Hat or yeah. something, even forgetting that it's December 1st and my phone rings, hello, Rudolph the Red <laughs> Nose, she'll just burst into it. And it warms my heart and makes me laugh more every year. So that has a very special place in my heart. I love that. So you've got a, a couple of Christmas traditions there. And one last thing, and it just sort of dawned on me here, putting the Christmas theme together and huge kind of uh, mashing them up. You must have at some point been stuck somewhere doing some gig you didn't want to be doing on Christmas over the years somewhere. Did that ever happen? Oh, yeah. yeah. Often. Yeah. Often. Yeah. And, you know, just too broke to get back home, that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, there were a lot of those planes, trains, and automobiles kind of thing, even though that took place around the U.S. Thanksgiving. If you translate it to to Christmas, oh, yeah, they're definitely. And a lot of times, a lot of the, one of the really kind of nice things, n n nice slash sad things, is when comedians can't get home, they all, they're, you know, they sort of cluster together. And so you have all these orphan, uh, we call them orphan Christmases, right? Where it's just all these comedians with no family around, nowhere to be, and, you know, $8 to their name. And everybody throws it into a kitty and you get a little bit of a, a turkey and some, you know, McCain's yeah. frozen French fries or whatever. And you have this wonderful sort of hodgepodge stitched together patchwork family over Christmas. And it's really nice. I love that. Find your logical family, if not your biological family. Yeah, exactly. That was Brent Butt. Check out his new novel, Huge, wherever you buy fine books. Next up, home designer, television host, and producer, best-selling author, sought-after public speaker, and host of her own special Tuscan getaways, Debbie Travis shared her favorite Christmas song and a really great story with me. Do you know, I really thought about this um, and I have to say for a personal re re reason, um, it was last Christmas with George Michael, uh, with Wham, because George was a friend of mine and um, 
the song wasn't huge, didn't go to number one until 2017. So I think it was 1985, 1984. But um, so it was even way before I came to Canada. But um, but it, after his death, you know, it uh, it exploded on the charts. And, um, you know, we miss George every day. And, and so I have to say, yeah, yeah, last Christmas. How was it that you were friends with George Michaels? Um, it was because my best friend in the whole world, um, who I do my retreats with in, in Italy, and we've been friends since uh, we met in Japan when we were models, was uh, is a girl called Jackie Brown, and her husband, Steve Brown, uh, was their producer. So, you know, George and Andrew in the early days had no money so you know we they used to borrow our leather jackets and stuff like this so you know I was always in the studio with Jackie because she was you know they always worked at night and and you know we were young we're in our very early 20s late teens in fact and um yeah I went to loads of the gigs with him and Andrew and um still in touch with some of them you know like Andrew and and uh yeah, it was. We lost touch obviously over the years, but when he he actually came to Toronto, um, maybe about ten years ago, and I went with my publicist to the concert, and I tried to get through in the you know through the the, the kerfuffle that goes yeah. around these huge stars, and I couldn't get through just to say I was I was going to be there, and it was impossible. I never heard back from anybody, and then. Um, about a third of the way into the concert, you know, I had seats up in the, you know, the miles from anywhere. And uh, suddenly he uh, looked up and he said, uh, I have a friend up there. I want to say hello to Debbie and uh, blew me a kiss. And of course I just collapsed. And um, yeah, and it was actually Christmas day um, with, I was with Steve Brown on Christmas day when he died and um, and, and, you know, we got the call from his sister. So it was, yeah, it was awful, just awful. And um, so we did lose touch over the years, but, you know, I'm hoping it didn't forget me or any of us. But, yeah, we were a gang, you know, and we went on holiday together. We once rented um, <laughs> a windmill in the north in, in Norfolk, which is the flat part of England, you know, the bit that was probably once connected to Holland. And we rented this windmill where there was, like, one room on each floor. And I, t- I will tell you a funny story. So... Um, George was a real hard worker and, and talented and he did everything and he brought his, you know, this electric piano thing. And we all went to the pub. We were all about 21. Um, we, he didn't want to go. And he was, he said, I'm, I'm writing something and, and, you know, I'm a bit, you know, it's in my head and I need to get it down. We're like, oh, you're so boring. Come to the pub. You know? And he said, uh, I'm too busy. I've got, I've got a, a song in my head and I'm going to stay in, in my pajamas. I'm going to write this song. So we all went to the pub and we had the most amazing time, right? The most fantastic time. And um, we uh, we came back late and he said, I said, oh, you missed such a fabulous time. And then he said, he said, but I've written a song. And so we said, OK, play it. So we played this song and it was Careless Whisper. And I remember saying to him, nah, you should have come to the pub. And that that song outdid Michael Jackson that year. So, yeah, who am I, the most unmusical person to judge poor George Michael? But, yeah, so that's my little George story. That was Debbie Travis on her favorite Christmas song and a great George Michael story. If you want to find out more about Debbie and her beautiful Tuscan resort, check out her website, DebbieTravis.com. Big thanks to Debbie for her gift of a great story. Thanks to Brent Butt, his new novel, Huge, is a dark psychological story about three comedians on the road. It's a big bestseller and would make a perfect Christmas gift. 
Thanks to Larry Weinstein. Check out his film Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas on iTunes and on the CBC Documentary Channel online. Thanks to Richard Balls for telling us all about Fairy Tale of New York. Love the song and I really loved his stories. A Furious Devotion, his biography of Shane McGowan, is a must-read for music fans and is available wherever you buy fine books. And a big thanks to Mo Berg of the supergroup TransCanada Highwaymen. Their album, Explosive Hits No. 1, is available wherever you find great music. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Have a happy, healthy, and safe holiday. Stay weird, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.